Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us today. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. The goal of this episode is to provide HR professionals, as well as employers in general, a little peek into what they are in for, uh, both immediately when the Biden presidency begins, as well as what they should be on the lookout for as that presidency progresses. We are also excited to announce that this is another SHRM credit-approved podcast episode, so please stay tuned for information on how to get your credits later in the program. Our guests today will be two employment lawyers. The first is attorney Joe Ellen Whitney of Davis Brown in Iowa. She is adept at managing the everyday chaos employers and human resources managers face. She is known for her approachable demeanor and practical approach to employment law. She shares her knowledge regularly. Joe is a prolific speaker and writer, simultaneously educating and entertaining audiences on the gray areas of employment law. Her clients are employers, managers, physicians, hospital administrators, and HR professionals in the health, manufacturing, telecommunications, technology, agriculture, and finance industries, as well as not-for-profit service organizations. She is described as top-notch by clients. She advises on a wide array of matters and issues relating to employment and labor law, health law, fair housing, privacy, and data security compliance, and contract and policy issues relating to grant funding. Our other guest is Charlie Plum, a shareholder at McAfee and Taft in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He represents management in all phases of employment law and labor relations. Much of his practice is dedicated to counseling employers on compliance with a broad range of state and federal employment laws and regulations, and educating management on best practices for avoiding disputes arising from the employer-employee relationship. He also has extensive litigation experience before federal and state courts, regulatory and administrative agencies, and in arbitration matters involving claims of discrimination, wrongful discharge, retaliatory discharge, breach of contract, and constitutional law violations. Thanks so much, Charlie and Joellen, for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jim. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. We really wanted to have an episode where we focused on what's going to change when the Biden administration takes over on January 20th. it's my understanding that a lot of what the Trump administration did or undid uh, was through the power of executive orders, which, as we know, can be undone by a new president. So I think we probably want to at least start there. What what kind of executive orders that affect employment law are we thinking are probably going to be changed on day one or very soon after? So one of the things that I that I was thinking about with this is one of the executive orders that caused a lot of consternation for federal contractors and others was the one that was entered on September 22nd relating to training. The fundamental component of that is that training, it really sort of almost prohibited training on implicit discrimination and certain forms of harassment. I know the DOD immediately changed its training schedule when that executive order came out. I think that one's gone on day one. I think that it is, it is, they move it out and that it's completely gone because you're going to see that focus back on um, diversity training. You're going to see a focus on implicit discrimination. And those kinds of trainings are going to be important in the Biden administration for federal contractors and others. 
So that September 22nd um, order is focused exclusively on those issues. And I think that goes away right away. The question becomes how that then affects some of these other issues that we see. Um, one of the things that happened was that the EEOC, the Department of Justice, OFCCP, and DOL all signed an MOU that they would cooperate and that they would split up some of these investigative issues and authority. In a lot of ways, that was meant to give OFCCP more cases that they were evaluating under these executive orders. And so that will throw into question, right, that MOU. Will they continue to cooperate? Um, will they continue to split these things up differently? Frankly, from my personal experience, I've never found them to be good at cooperating. Um, I have a lot of, because I do a lot of healthcare law and employment for healthcare clients. I mean, we have, there's this thing for long-term care called the PB&J, um, which is not a lovely sandwich that you feed your children. It's the payroll-based journal. The payroll-based journal is structured in such a way that it can't even comply with the Department of Labor way, right? So the DOL and CMS and HHS, they, they have completely separate regulations. And so that, that cooperation, I think, is hard for them. And I'd be interested to know what would happen you know, with this MOU, where they, where they think that's going to go. And when it was proposed, there was a real concern from the, the two Democrats on the panel that it would lessen the independence of the EEOC. So I think there's some real issues there. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't agree with Joellen more. You know, stepping back on kind of a, a big picture, Jim, I think, you know, uh, although we're, we're here recording this in late November, you know, it's it's likely that we're going to see uh, a, a, a still Republican Senate and uh, and a Democratic White House, and that means you know when when we talk about executive orders, they've become the new normal under both the, the Trump administration and the prior administration when it comes to affecting employment law changes. So you know, generally, I think we're going to see going forward uh, after the inauguration. Uh, we're going to see changes when it comes to employment law that come through not only executive orders, but also rulemaking at the agency level, uh, opinion letters, uh, guidances, those sorts of things. Uh, and, and when, you know, as we go through today, Joellen and I, and we talk about, uh, you know, our kind of predictions or where employers should be looking for changes going forward. Uh, you know, if we look at, uh, at President-elect Biden's employment labor transition team, it's, it's peopled uh, largely by uh, former Obama Department of Labor, NLRB, and EEOC alumni. And, and those are the people that are going to shape the direction of the agencies going forward. And many of them are, are going to become, I think, uh, agency appointees. Uh, so when Joe Allen and I are, are talking about what we see on the horizon, I think uh, a realization that Executive orders are the new normal, uh, rulemaking, opinion letters, and guidances, and look into those transition uh, team members on the, the Biden campaign and looking at their stated intentions during the campaign. I think I think they do give us <clears throat> I, I think they do give us some idea of the direction we should anticipate. I'll throw something else in there. In addition to executive orders, rulemaking, opinion letters, and guidances, I think for the next four years, employers are going to be facing, regardless of which of the agencies Joellen mentioned are involved, we're going to see a heightened uh, and an emphasis on investigations by uh, and audits by 
uh, federal employment agencies and an increased number of investigators, whether it's the Department of Labor, whether it's the EEOC, whether it's the Department of Justice. I think that's going to going to be the case. Joellen, am I going out on a limb or what do you think? No, I think you're absolutely correct. And actually, I was going to ask you just as a place to start what you thought about the NLRB, because I think that's a place where guidances have particularly been problematic over the last, say, 10 years. Yeah, I, I, you know, one, one of the realities, and that's, that's going to be a big change, we, we can see from the makeup of the transition team and what's been said on the campaign trail that we're going to see a, we're going to see a shakeup at the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, President-elect Biden's going to have the opportunity to appoint a new NLRB general counsel, and that's really the individual who's going to control the prosecution and direction of, of the agency and is going to oversee regional enforcement offices. Uh, in August of next year, uh, a vacancy on the board is going to uh, open up, and at that point, uh, that's going to create a Democratic majority on the NLRB. Uh, some of the rulemaking and decisions that have arisen from the, the labor board during the Trump administration have really made it uh, more easy for employers to contest union elections uh, and, and those kind of efforts. I think, you know, we've got this PRO Act, uh, Protecting the Rights uh, to Organize Act, that was passed by the House in February that stalled the Senate. And it has some it has some pretty uh, pretty dramatic changes uh, lined up. Uh, you know, there there's there's a provision that's uh, aimed at weakening or preempting state right to work laws uh, that right now let workers opt out of paying dues to unions. Uh, it has provisions that makes it easier to form unions and obtain union contracts. Uh, you know, it, it's it's going to be difficult, I think to pass in its present form unless the Senate majority flips. Uh, but I think I think some of these same objectives we see in the in the in the PRO Act that passed in the House and stalled in the Senate, we may see them try and achieve that in their Biden administration through regulation and the general counsel steering legal theories. In other words, I think we should anticipate uh, both renewed unionization efforts, union organizing efforts, and some efforts on the part of the, the labor board to facilitate that or, or make that easier. Uh, make sense, Joellen, or not? Yeah, I think it does. And I, th I think, too, when we think about the NLRB, um, a lot of my clients aren't unionized, right? And so I think about the impact that NLRB regulations, particularly Section 7, has on non-unionized organizations. I mean, you know, the guidance, right? That's something that could come out much more quickly than changes in regulations. It doesn't require anybody to vote on it, technically. Um, you're going to get these guidances. And, and, you know, before, right, when we had a Democratic administration, the one that really stuck in my mind is the guidance that came out that was all about sort of how you interacted with employees. What was, you know, discussion of workplace? And it basically allowed profanity and, um, ethnic slurs and just a wide array of things, even though the courts had said that wasn't really okay. And when they finally got enough court opinions saying, yeah, no, this isn't okay. And then we also moved to a new administration, you know, those guidances got replaced. And so I do think that, you know, as we talked in the beginning about what's an immediate change versus what's a longer term legislative change, I do think about the guy, you know, the role guidances have played at the NLRB. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, 
I, I think you and I are on the same wavelength that uh, we've seen a tightening uh, of, you know, the two parties control of the House. Uh, Senate's still up for grabs, but, it, 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 you know, I'm going to say it's likely to remain a Republican majority. And we're, employers need to expect uh, we're going to be, even with that maybe deadlock through the guidance that you've mentioned, uh, you know, we're going to see a more a more robust unionization effort and and these kind of guidances and, and perhaps opinion letters that are going to make it easier for unionization going forward. Can I, can I, I was going to switch gears uh, a little bit, but it's timely, uh, particularly with what your state's going through and mine is right now with COVID. How about some thoughts on uh, public health or uh, workplace health issues? Oh, so... That's a, you know, I think that's a really complicated question. Iowa is one of the, one of the states that has its own OSHA, right? So we have Iowa OSHA. Um, OSHA has recently been sued by the American Civil Liberties Union here in Iowa, alleging that they weren't doing enough um, in certain industries. Uh, you know, we have packing plants, right? I live in Iowa. We, we have a lot of pigs. We have more pigs than people. And we have packing plants. We have that kind of stuff. We have a lot of COVID outbreaks packing plants. There was a real OSHA concern and push there. Um, you know, there's been some concerns in healthcare, although I think, honestly, I think a lot of those are unfounded, but there's been some concerns in healthcare, those kinds of things. So we're going to see, at least with things like OSHA and worker safety, we're going to see a real tension here in Iowa between Iowa, which is basically a Republican government. Um, pretty, I think there might be one Democrat like hiding behind a cupboard or something, but it's basically a Republican government. Um, and then how that may clash with national perception and national guidelines. We're going to see some real issues there. Well, you, you know, Iowa may have Oklahoma beat when it comes to pigs, but I think we I think we've got you outnumbered when it comes to cattle and chickens. OK, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think I think, again, it's part of the theme that we're going to see a real emphasis on investigation and enforcement at the federal employment agency. Uh, level. That's certainly the case uh, with OSHA. Uh, you know, uh, OSHA's general duty clause that requires employers to maintain a workplace that's free from recognized hazards. That's kind of a that's kind of a catch-all. That's that's something that OSHA and individuals can use uh, to challenge employers where they contend the employers failed to take you know some sort of reasonable steps to prevent hazardous conditions or have failed to take steps to enforce safety standards uh, that OSHA has set out. So I think we're going to see a, a flurry uh, of investigation and enforcement uh, on that general duty clause, just on challenging workers on how, you know, what good, a, what good a job they're doing in keeping the workplace generally free. That's a catch-all. Uh, you know, Jim, to, to your point, what happens uh uh, you know, on the short term, what happens in January, the first quarter of 2021? Joellen, my thought is, uh, I think the Biden administration is going to be very aggressive very early on establishing some sort of temporary but emergency standard for COVID-19 in the workplace. And what I'm talking about is, and they can do this through an executive order, I really think, is, is really establishing specific enforceable standards that could be imposed and enforced 
uh, on employers on what sort of safety policies and procedures. I'm not talking about the guidances now that employers, uh, you know, are following as issued by the CDC or perhaps local or state health departments. But I think we're going to see some sort of federal standard for workplace COVID-19 policies and procedures early on. What, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, so I think that that's likely, I think you're going to see a ton of pushback on it. I think that it's really likely. And frankly, in some ways, I think that would be a relief. One of the problems that people, I, I feel like my clients and everybody else really struggles with is the fact that all of this stuff has been so mushy around the edges. Right. I mean, here, like here in Iowa, the CDC, the Iowa Department of Public Health, and we have 99 counties with 99 public health departments. They don't all agree. And so that's been really hard for these guys to do, you know, the best they could. So, frankly, in some ways, it's nice to have an actual hard line. Yeah. I mean, the whole uh, COVID-19 policy and protocols, you know, first of all, it's it's. It's complicated. I mean, I think most employers I'm working with, it's hard to wade through whatever guidance, whether you're talking about CDC, state or local, uh, it can be very technical and very complicated. But I think all that's magnified when I'm when I'm working with uh, an employer uh, who may be in three or four different states, you know, we're having to we're having to drill down sometimes at the county level, as you said, Joellen. Uh, we're, you know, I've got, I've got a, a client that has two locations in Texas, and we've got a differential on safety standards or protocols depending on which county their facility is located. So uh, there, there, is some, uh, there is some advantage, uh, advantage to some commonality, I think. Uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, there's, it's not going to be without opposition, but I, you know, I think particularly as Unfortunately, things may become more dire. Uh, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a, a real, you know, support for some sort of national standard rules, and uh, it's it's going to be applicable to the workplace, and and it is something I think they can roll out relatively quickly. And I, you know, if you listen and read between the lines of of what uh, they said on the campaign trail and what the Biden administration's transition team says they're, they, you know, that's one of the first subjects they talk about is, is something uh, aimed at getting their arms around this. So right. I think that's, that may be, that may be job one. Right. I think you're right. I think it is frankly job one. I mean, you've got an awful lot of epidemiologists that they're talking to, um, you know, uh, you know, right now they're not necessarily talking to the ones at CDC, but they are talking to a lot of epidemiologists, that kind of thing, and really aimed at that national plan. And, you know, yes, but in, we're going to get pushback, but, you know, there are a lot of sick, you know, I'm in, Iowa has the third highest COVID rate in the nation today, right? That's a lot of sick people. So they got to do something. Yeah, I guess that's right. Hey, I'd like, I'd like your thoughts on, <clears throat> Maybe specifically, where do you think the EEOC goes and what direction will it be taking the next, you know, two to four years? Yeah, I always think the EEOC is a little hard to predict. Uh, Charlie, I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's the national EEOC issues, but then the regions differ so much. At least, you know, here 
you know, because a lot of times if I get a regional one, it's going to be Illinois. And Illinois is really different than some of the other regions. Super active, that kind of thing. Um, I think you'll see less cooperation with from the EEOC with other agencies um, because I think they're going to I think the Biden administration will really want them to you know, focus on being this independent, strong agency. But I'm wondering what you think about affirmative action, what stance the EEOC will take on affirmative action under a new administration. You know, I, I think, again, judging by the players on the transition team and the statements made uh, during the campaign, I think affirmative action uh, is going to be, you know, is going to be something they're going to want to protect and grow. Uh, you know, it's it's been disfavored. We we just had a we just had a recent decision, uh, you know, by this <clears throat> by the Supreme Court on right. affirmative action in the context of educational institutions. But I, you know, this this new administration, I think, is committed to protecting and and making more vibrant uh, affirmative action. It's kind of you know, I think my my own experience has been in the last two to four years uh, enforcement has been pretty lax. Audits have been very lax. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I, th I think we're going to see, and, 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 you know, in that environment, employers tend to uh, maybe let slide some of their affirmative action obligations for, you know, when they're a, a federal contractor. Right. So one of the things I would, I would, uh, I would give employers a heads up. I think we can expect uh, again with this theme of, more investigators, more audits, more enforcement. I think we're going to see, uh, you know, life breathe back into the affirmative action and its enforcement. Uh, is that right. is that something you foresee? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, and I think it won't just come from you know the EEOC again, who I see, frankly, under a new administration, more litigation from the EEOC. Um, you know, really more push to litigate some of those cases, those kinds of things. But I also think, you know, the OFCCP is going to take an extremely different direction, much more positive on affirmative action. I mean, the OFCCP right now, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but we haven't had any on-site audits or anything of that type in, in ages. It, it, you know, if we get an audit at all, it's a desk audit. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot more of those on-site kinds of audits, you know, kind of as you're predicting, in between EEOC, but also with OFCCP. So, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, there was some movement in the legislature uh, to extend Title VII protections to employers with less than 15 employees and even potentially trying to uh, apply Title VII discrimination protections to independent contractors. Uh, and that, that's really got to obviously be done at the legislative uh, at the legislative level. That's not something they're going to be able to, to do through the agency. Is that DOA or are we going to see something like that revived to, to rope in more employers and perhaps independent contractors? Right. And I think, you know, that was we saw for a while a real trend, I think, with the EEOC trying to push that and expand that. And I even saw it here with the Iowa Civil Rights Commission on a couple of instances on the independent contractor. But a lot of the changes that they created for the independent contractor rules over the last year or so, or the proposals they've made, they seem to me almost bipartisan, right? They're really more about clarifying what's there. I, I think the 15, maybe, 
right, to make it apply to more smaller employers. Um, I mean, heck, the FFCRA applied to people, you know, had less than 50 employees. So they, they've got a little, you know, groundswell there. Um, but I think it's, I think the independent contractor thing is, I think that's a hard sell. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what do you think, what's going to change? I mean, we, we had in September, I'm going to transition independent contractor since we kind of bled into that. Sure. We had, we had a proposed new rule in September uh, issued that was was really intended, I think, to make it easier for employers to designate individuals as independent contractors as opposed to employees. And, and, you know, one of the advantages to an employer to designate an individual or treat somebody as an independent contractor as opposed to employee is, you know, it, it may, you know, may help them avoid employer liability issues, it may help them avoid benefits uh, issues, compensation issues, or tax obligations. So we've got this September proposed rule by the by the current administration, making it easier for employers to designate independent contractors. I think my memory is that's scheduled to be final by the end of the year. Yes. Uh, what, what happens to that? And, and I guess I'm a little uncertain on uh, the ability of a new administration, I think they're they're going to be opposed to this. I mean, I think a Biden administration wants to be more inclusive, wants to treat more employees as employee, uh, more people as employees rather than independent contractors, right? Right. So how how does how does how does I guess I don't know when you've got a new rule. Let's assume it goes into effect in December thirty one. Is that something that uh, a new administration can throw the switch on or rescind or withdraw or? issue a counter rule? How does that work? So if we, you know, if we go back historically, you know, remember right before Trump got elected, we had all those new rules on who was and was not exempt. And what the baseline was for exemption and those kinds of things. And, and some of that, right, those were yanked out of the, out of the way. They, DOL pulled all of that back. Um, some of that was based on the litigation, but some of that was just the DOL chose not to enforce them. And then they crafted the new rule, that kind of thing. Do you think it'll be like that, like what we saw there between Obama to Trump on the exemption? You know, it could be. I mean, I guess theoretically, I mean, a new administration has the ability, I think, to rescind the new rule uh, without without any sort of legislative action, obviously. I mean, and I guess if, if, if you think... Uh, as I do, that the Biden administration is going to be in a mode where they want more individuals considered employees and less as independent contractors. Uh, and I think that is a, a safe assumption. And I think it's a commitment by the Biden administration. I guess what I would anticipate, not only a rescission of this uh, new rule, uh, but issuing probably something with quite different direction. I mean, it's it's one thing to rescind, but if you really want to accomplish uh, including more individuals as employees and less as independent contractor, you not only rescind the new uh, independent contractor rule, but you issue your own. Right. Uh, I would See, say. I think what you do there is I think you suspend basically enforcement. So you basically say, you know, this is a potential new standard. This is what we're going to do, but we're not going to enforce it. We're not going to do anything as we seek more input. 
which is what they've done, um, you know, on like HIPAA and OCR issues and things like that. You suspend the enforcement that gives them time to put a new thing in place and then they get rid of it and put the new place thing in place simultaneously. I got you. So you buy time that way. Right. You buy time. You, you basically say, yeah, we have this out there, but we're not going to use it. So don't worry about it. And then we're going to we're going to get a little more info and then we're going to clarify. So it it kind of lives there, but it's not enforceable. And then they and then they replace it. So they don't you don't have that weird interim gap because, you know, like with joint employment, I mean, joint employment has bounced around everywhere. Right. I mean, it's been here. It's been there. It depends on what California does on the third Thursday kind of thing. It's all over the place. And I think they want to avoid that because it's so confusing. Yeah, and if, if you're an employer, you know, either either route, whether you, you just suspend enforcement or you rescind and issue a new rule, I mean, I guess, I guess from an employer's planning standpoint, uh, this new year, I would look, you know, I would look very hard at who I have classified as independent contractors uh, and, and how firm, you know, how good a decision that is, how defensible a decision it is. Because to me, whatever route uh, the new administration takes procedurally, I have to anticipate 2021 going forward, my classification of individuals as independent contractors is going to be under more scrutiny. And, and, you know, and that, that comes in a couple of ways. When you have people... Uh, you've designated as independent contractors, you may have a governmental agency challenging you on that classification. I mean, it may be a tax you know, agency saying you should have been withholding tax. It may be a workers' compensation claim. It may be an unemployment claim saying, hey, you were wrong uh, in classifying this individual as an independent contractor. Uh, you should have treated them as an employee for purposes of benefits. Uh, or, or you may get an individual lawsuit against an individual saying, hey, I should have been in your 401k plan. I wasn't really an independent contractor. But, you know, I think these moves you and I are talking about uh, really mean there's going to be a higher profile, a higher likelihood, whether it's a governmental agency or an individual uh, really scrutinizing and perhaps challenging uh, 2021 going forward who we have who we have designated as an independent contractor. And you want to be particularly careful about the independent contractor issue because of the tax issues um, and the penalties that are attached to that. But additionally, if you have enough independent contractors, that's the makings of a class action lawsuit. And, you know, that's not something I don't think any of us want to be involved in under the Biden administration. I think you're going to see real issues there. So I've, I've got a question. We heard during the campaign uh, a lot of emphasis on increasing the minimum wage under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And I, I think, you know, some of the specific statements were made, uh, you know, that there's, an, there's a desire to get to $15 an hour by 2026. And, uh, you know, where does that go? And, and, and I don't think that's necessarily a Democratic or Republican exclusive issue. Right. Is that, do you think that gets any legs uh, in our in Congress, regardless of how the, the Georgia races turn out? I you know, that issue is not going away. 
right? The, the minimum wage is not going away. That is an easy issue for people to stand on. It's an easy issue for people to talk about. I mean, I think that gets a lot more traction. And a lot of the states, you, you know, a lot here in the Midwest, as I'm sure you know, I mean, we had a lot of that county by county, like raising the minimum wage. And then the state would pass a law that would say you couldn't do a county by county. They're going to look to federal legislation because of that. I, I think that's going to blow up. I think it's going to be big. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think we're, we've already seen a, uh, a trend that on the state and local level, uh, they're kind of out ahead of it. And, you know, one thing I've noticed is uh, this this minimum wage increase movement, it, it, it does seem to be a little bipartisan, doesn't it? I think so. I mean, I think, well, and so particularly on the state level, right, it's going to be bipartisan because these are your constituents, clear and specifically, right, who cannot make a living because they don't get paid more than, you know, eight bucks an hour kind of thing. So, so I think, you know, on a state level, I think it's very clear. And I think that pressure moves its way up. So I do think it is bipartisan yeah. um, to try to do those kinds of things. And if you're going to talk holistically, right, about the middle class and how to make the middle class more secure, minimum wage plays into that. If you're going to talk about health care costs, right, minimum wage plays into that. It touches so many other components that I think they have to look at it. Well, it I'm just sitting here thinking, when it comes to employment law issues, the list of, of subjects that lend themselves to bipartisan, bipartisan support, that's a short list, Joellen. Yes, this is true. <laughs> this is uh, true. Of course, I, I consider that, that whole fact, I consider that uh, job security for employment lawyers. So this is all positive for, for us personally, okay? Yeah. Well, and, you know, the minimum wage thing, too, I, I mean, from a purely practical perspective, there is not a fast food restaurant in my state that is hiring at minimum wage, right? They can't get, I mean, I have, a, I, a, Iowa particularly has a critical shortage of workers. I mean, no one is going to stick for minimum wage unless they're a brand new high school student kind of thing. And so in some ways, just the practical pressures, right, push that up which makes it a little easier, I think, to be bipartisan. Well, the, uh, you know, another FLSA uh, issue on the horizon, I think employers ought to consider, is the white collar exemption. You know, we got one of the requirements in our white collar exemption, you know, the exemption from paying overtime. Uh, you know, there is a duties component. I have to, I have to have responsibilities and duties that fit into one of the white collar exemptions in order to avoid overtime uh, obligation. But the, the other, there's also the salary, salary threshold, and that was increased from $455 a week to $684 a week. If you, if you raise the weekly uh, salary threshold, then we're essentially for employers increasing the number of employees who qualify for overtime. So do you see, Joellen, that 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 six eighty four uh, weekly salary threshold to avoid overtime uh, requirements? Do you see that standing pat, or is there going to be any pressure to elevate that too? I think that's a really complicated question because it was a much higher threshold at the end of the Obama administration. You know, you had the Texas cases, right? There was a ton of case case law. 
in Texas, and Texas was not happy about that. Then you got this sort of change once you get the Trump, Trump administration, which bumps it up, but bumps it up lesser. Um, do you think they'll let the first automatic bump go through first before they go after that? That's a good, that's a good point. And what's the t- timing of that? I don't remember the timing of that, but I hadn't thought about that's a really good point. Why make it an issue until you get the, uh, you know, the first elevation of that amount? Right. And I don't remember, but I think it's like another year or so. And you yeah. get that, get that first, uh, and I'm sorry, I didn't take time to look that up today, but I think, and I mean, if I'm them, right, I see how that works. And then if, and then when you get that elevation and it doesn't seem like enough, it feels like it gives you more of a political voice to say, this isn't working. Yeah, I think you're right, Joellen, about the white collar exemption. I think under the FLSA, the minimum wage increase is going to get a lot more attention, a lot more interest, and a lot more bipartisan support. Uh, one of the things that we heard about in the course of the campaign was eliminating the tip credit. Now, uh, and what that really provides is if you are an employer where your employees are tipped, for example, restaurants or hospitality uh, employers, you had the ability uh, to pay a lower minimum wage and take credit for that that tip. And there, you know, and that if that were to happen, uh, that would, uh, you know, if the tip credit was eliminated, that would would really result in a, a pretty dramatic increase in hourly wages to hospitality industry employees. You know, I, do you, is that a long shot? Have you heard anything or any desire to, to really push that elimination of the tip credit and the lower minimum wage for hospitality employees? I've heard a few people talking about that. And one of the things that I find interesting is that argument has been given more weight because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19. When I hear uh, talk about it, they say things like, well, we kept the restaurants open and those servers aren't even getting minimum wage. And right, they're forced to deal with patrons who might get sick. Who, you know, So I think that the COVID-19 stuff actually put some pressure on that because if you're gonna call servers or restaurant workers or hospitality workers essential employees, how come you're not at least paying a minimum wage? Right, that makes sense. Now on a personal level, I don't know about you, but I, I know how those those employees are struggling. Uh, I got to tell you, I've become a much better tipper during during the pandemic. What about you? I, I have actually always been a good tipper because I was a waitress once upon a time. So yeah, I, I'm I'm with you there. I, I I always find my my own experience when I see people that are not uh, uh, you know gracious or you know uh, generous tippers. I, I find they are the folks that have never worked in the hospitality or food industry. Right. But yeah, but I do, I do find, I do find myself the way things are, are going. I, I, I lean a little bit heavier on that tip jar than I did even before. So I, I do with all of the social distancing and everything, there's a downtown here, there's a, a small bar that's all outside that kind of thing. And, you know, normally that'd be quite a small tip because it's just like a single beer that you take somebody for, but no, yeah, we've, we've been really generous tippers because we're worried about people. Well, that absolutely. Excuse me, I'm sorry. No, and, I, and just those businesses themselves, right? I, I mean, I deal with a lot of restaurants that are, you know, they're worried about servers not coming back. They're worried about not having people, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, the re, you know, the, the outside dining, you're in the same boat Oklahoma is. Uh, I mean, uh, 
we have Tulsa, Oklahoma has the best barbecue restaurant in the world. I just I'm just going to say that right right now. Burn Co. And I'm just going to challenge any Texan, anybody the best the best barbecue anywhere. But now with outside dining, you know, everybody, every restaurant in town is going to be challenged as the weather turns. Right. Know, we don't we don't have Florida weather. We don't have California weather. It's going to be a real struggle going forward. Right. That's I think it's going to it's going to be really hard on people. But that I, I do think that highlights how we pay those people. Right. 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 Um, because, you know, the tip credit thing is a little tough to figure out when they go on unemployment compensation. Yeah, that's a nightmare. Right. And their rate and those kinds of things. And they've certainly, you know, been on a, quite a few of them have been on unemployment compensation. And so that I mean, some of that complexity, there'll be some push to get rid of that complexity. Yeah, you made a great point on uh, in, the, in, the, in the context of, of health and workplace health, how we've got to we've got a patchwork at the state and local levels uh, when it comes to protocols and safety requirements. You know, one of the things I've been running into uh, is we, we have a similar patchwork on paid family or paid sick leave around the country. Uh, you know, some states and municipalities have instituted mandatory paid family and sick leave. Uh, and there's a, you know, there's been discussion about uh, on a national level, uh, some sort of permanent paid family and sick leave. You know, we've got unpaid with FMLA, but now, you know, this there has been proposed what they call the Family Act that was going to give individuals on a national basis up to 12 weeks of, of paid family and sick leave with employers and employees contributing to a fund that really that really pays for uh, pays for that leave on a national basis. It's a similar system that's in place at the state level. And there does, you know, there was even some discussion early on in the Trump administration about expanding family leave or maybe adopting some sort of paid leave program uh, that, that that's gone by the wayside. But I, I think we're going to see I think we're going to see that revisited in the new administration. And I, it's like maybe it's like minimum wage. I think there's going to be some receptivity uh, from both parties on recognizing and providing providing on a national basis some sort of paid family and sick leave. We're going to see that introduced into Congress. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts, Joellen? Well, I think that's regularly introduced. It tends to be more of a Democratic push, I believe. Um, it was Ivanka, right, in the beginning of the Trump administration. That was one of Ivanka's proposals right. and programs. Right. Very dedicated to the idea of paid leave for families, that kind of thing. Um, I, and I wonder, too, if the emergency under the FFPRA, so the EPSL, if that isn't, you know, something they're going to look at, right, that they're going to talk about what a difference that make, how that impacted people. You know, you, know, you have the emergency family medical for the school closures, but that EPSL was, you know, really close to some of the things that they're talking about, although you, you know, you fund that, right, with a, a, a tax refund at the end. So I do think, I do think that's a, on... Anybody who says that they're working for the workers, I think that's on their work their wish list. I think that's definitely on their wish list. I think the EPSL, the EPSL probably paved the way for us to be thinking about that. I do think some individual employers had some really bad experiences with that emergency paid sick leave, and so that might form a little bit of a barrier, right? The Better Business Bureau, people like that. I mean, that might form. Um, I mean, the Chambers of Commerce, that kind of thing. They might pick up on those complaints and might push back. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a that's a great point, though. 
the emergency paid a sick leave that was a, a component of the FFCRA. That uh, really caused all of us uh, as employers to at least put our toe in the water and, right. and get some, you know, I, I found that uh, as time went on, you know, there were some hiccups and there were some problems, but employers got more sophisticated and more comfortable with administering and monitoring and policing emergency paid sick leave. So I, I, I like your thought that by and large, you know, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't universal, but by and large, we've at least become more familiar as employers right. uh, and, and maybe more receptive uh, to uh, some sort of paid leave. And, and, and like anything else, like any other sort of paid leave, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have the bad apples. We're going to have the abusers. It's going to put a premium on having good policies, training our supervisors and enforcing it. But it's not as, ex you know, now in the wake of the pandemic or having gone through the, you know, the pandemic, it's less exotic, I think, in some right. way. I do. I think it paved the way. And I think, interestingly enough, the, the sort of, co-joined issue of this emergency paid sick leave and then the extra workforce money, the extra unemployment compensation money, actually put the emergency paid sick leave in a better light for a lot of employers, right? Because it was if you were sick, if you were quarantined, if we had this kind of stuff. So they had less complaints about that. The place my, at least the people I work with, had a lot of complaints about was the extra money on unemployment compensation. Because uh -huh. they... They felt like that piece is what encouraged their employees to maybe not come to work or not volunteer or that kind of thing. So I actually think that promoted that, EP, that EPSL a little more than if you hadn't had that issue. It made it seem sort of like the lesser of evils. Well, and another thing, you know, I think we need to keep in mind if there is a movement for more paid families uh, or for paid sick leave and family leave on a national basis, you know, we, we've all become more sophisticated and more effective in in using employees on a remote basis. So right. I think one of the things that uh, as you know, the fallout here is, you know, employers have found, hey, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be liable for uh, emergency paid sick leave uh, or, or perhaps, you know, extended FMLA leave if I can offer uh, remote work you know, on, and on, on a meaningful basis. And I think employers have become more, uh, more effective in doing that. And, you know, I think with any sort of national paid family and sick leave, you're going to see that issue arise and, and, and say, well, wait a minute, uh, if we have some way to work uh, remotely, uh, as we did during the pandemic, uh, that may be a disqualifying factor too. Again, I, again, I think it's piece, a piece of what you've talked about, that this experience during the the pandemic with with leave and paid leave, it's made us all probably smarter and more sophisticated in that area. I think so too. So, you know, just because you raise the issue of remote work and to sort of pick up on that, I, I do think a lot of employers who would never have considered remote work before, you certainly did during the pandemic. And that makes, you know, that makes that a little easier sell later. Um, you know, the EEOC has, has clearly said that just because we offered remote work during COVID-19 pandemic doesn't mean we have to keep offering it. So that helped, right? Because in some instances, we're not going to be able to do that. But it does open up other concerns. The, prob the, 
one of the bigger problems I think we're going to face if we continue to do substantive remote work for everybody is really honestly just the straight up privacy and security issues. Um, hacking, ransomware, um, incursions. AHIMA, the American Health Information Management Association, had one study that said during the pandemic, those had increased 30,000%, not 30%, 30,000%. So that the remote work, remote work from home, particularly if it's just periodic when you need sick leave or something, is going to open up another set of issues. And as you said before, Charlie, full employment for us forever. You know, <laughs> another set of issues there. Hey, I wanted to, as we wind down here, I had a couple of a, a couple of things on my checklist I was going to run by you, again, in, 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 in kind of a predictive uh, mode, what, what, where do you think this goes in the future? Uh, so I should get out my magic eight ball, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, and no, I've just got a, I, I've got, I've got like chicken bones I'm reading right here. I mean, if you, mine's a little bit more you know, more basic. Okay. Whatever, whatever works for you, Joe Allen. Okay. You had a lot of chickens there in Oklahoma. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not getting any pig bones here in the office. So, okay. Okay. Well, so uh, have you had employers that you work with in the last several years uh, put in place uh, mandatory arbitration policies? That is where an employee who feels like they've been treated unfairly or inconsistent with the policy or maybe discriminatorily instead of filing a lawsuit, they have to go through an arbitration process. Has that, has that gotten legs in Iowa and with the folks you work with? No, because you're not allowed to do that in Iowa. Ah, okay. Okay. Is that a state law that prohibits it? Yeah, it's a state law issue. If you can bring it fully under federal law, right, if it's exclusively a federal claim, we can use the federal rule, but by and large, you can't do that in Iowa. Okay. So we don't, we don't have that limitation in Oklahoma. I've seen, I didn't realize it. Iowa did. I, I knew some other states did. I think we may see some uh, may see some effort to limit or bar mandatory arbitration. That is requiring an employee to sign arbitration agreements in order to work someplace. Right. You've already well, got that. You've already got that in Iowa, huh? Right. Uh, yes. And I think. I mean, I think you're going to see that across the board. Right. I think you're going to see limitations on when you can mandate or require arbitration. I think you're going to see limitations on when you can require settlements to be confidential um, or people not to talk. I think I think a lot of those things that people consider to be um, sort of barriers to employees having their case fully heard or that we view as perpetuating bad behavior. You know, Harvey Weinstein didn't do us any favors, right? Um, and to perpetuating bad behavior, I think you're going to continue to see pushbacks on that. Um, just across the board. I mean, Google rolled a bunch of those things back just because they thought it was better publicity not to do it that way. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, in, on that same same line, you know, we have limited, uh, in Oklahoma, we have limits on the ability to enforce non-competition clauses. Uh, right. You know, I, I think we're going to see more and more, uh, maybe on a national level, there's going to be some restrictions and say employers... Uh, you know, can't enforce non-competition clauses except maybe in very narrow categories to protect right. trade secrets. I, right. I, I, you know, I think, and, and we've seen some, we've seen some activity by the Department of Labor, talk, Department of Justice to attack no poaching agreements where employers agree they're not going to hire other employees uh, from their competitors uh, 
which I think some people perceive as is limiting mobility of employees in the job market. But I, you know, I, I think we're going to see some legislative efforts to really knock down non-competition clause enforceability and no poaching agreements. Again, kind of in that same vein. Right. I think the no poaching agreements too, it also kind of start to bleed in a little bit into antitrust. Right. And, right. And we have, and I know like with Microsoft, there've been some antitrust, you know, rumblings with those kinds of agreements as well. Um, I did, you know, the problem with non-competes is, is too many of them for too much stupid stuff, right? I mean, if you have sandwich shops making their sandwich makers sign non-competes, that dilutes our ability to defend any kind of non-compete. And, and, and so I do think you're going to continue to get those limitations. Iowa allows you to have a pretty full non-compete, um, you know, pretty easier here to enforce them than a lot of places, but our surrounding states are significantly stricter um, about the non-compete. So I think you are, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think we're going to see pushback on these non-competes. I would, I would like to continue to see them in certain areas where you have, I mean, not necessarily just in the IP world, right? Where you have right to work, you have IP kinds of development, but certain areas and certain types of um, certain types of jobs really do lend themselves more cleanly to that. So I, I can see where that would happen. Well, I'm, I'm going to, to my deathbed, I'm going to protect the confidentiality of the barbecue sauce at my favorite barbecue restaurant. Okay, <laughs> Joellen, I'm just going to, I'm going to stand up for them. Okay. Okay. Well, but you've got copyright. You got a lot of stuff. You can <laughs> use there. You got I a bet. lot of stuff you can use there. That's all. That's all I've got, Joellen. I've really enjoyed talking through this, you've opened my eyes to a bunch. Have I, have I missed anything or have you anything, any other thoughts you may have? No, I don't. Uh, I mean, I don't think that there's a ton of other issues. I do think it will be interesting. The only other thing I would add is I do think it's going to be interesting to see what cases develop under the ADA, ADAAA over the COVID-19 pandemic, because we haven't seen that wave of cases yet. And you, you had administration that wasn't particularly sympathetic to the ADA. Now you'll have an administration that's significantly more sympathetic. And so that'll be something for all of our employers to really watch out for, I think. So you're talking about the, the, maybe a wave of retaliate, not just you didn't give me the FFCRA benefits I was entitled to, but perhaps I was retaliated against right. when I sought that type of help or, or my, my post-pandemic medical condition that needs right. to come. Right. Or, great, great call. Right. And one of the things I expect to see is that, you know, I took a bunch of time off because I was worried about COVID. And now when you brought me back, it's not the same job. It's not as good. Or maybe I didn't get as big a bonus. And you're retaliating against me because I needed this time off. Because frankly, I have a lot of people who don't have a condition per se, like are not sick with COVID, but are so scared of COVID, they don't come to work. Right. Um, and it's harder when you're at work and you're pulling a double shift to be sympathetic to that. So I'm wondering if we don't see some retaliation claims for work conditions post pandemic, right, about how I got treated because I needed leave. Yeah. You know, and the, and the best, you know, the, the other reality, I think, is uh, when people return to work, you know, full speed post pandemic. Right. We're, it's going to be a it's going to be a changed environment for everybody, yes. a rat, radically different workplace. Yes, but again, you and I will still have a job, so it'll be good. Uh -huh. 
hopefully I still have a job too. Um, <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Charlie and Joellen. Uh, I think it's a, a lot of information, a lot of really good information for our audience. I know they're going to love it. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Joellen, good talking with you yes, again. Yes, it's always fun to talk to Charlie. He has the best voice. <laughs> um, remember, listeners, this is a Sherm Credit Approved Podcast. All you have to do is go to hrdailyadvisor.blr.com forward slash Sherm code. That's hrdailyadvisor.blr.com forward slash S-H-R-M-C-O-D-E and enter the code 2021. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.